Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. BJJ Mental Models episode 107. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. I am without Matt again this week. He is still on vacation. Should be back next week. Hope everyone out there is having a happy new year. And today, joined again by a returning champion, Mr. Robert Deagle. Robert, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me again. We've had a lot of discussions about different topics that we could talk about here. Mm-hmm. And man, there's just like, there's just not enough time. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. But yeah. one thing that kind of emerged in our discussions, a topic that Matt and I have talked about doing on the podcast, but we just didn't really have the right structure for it. But then you brought it up independently. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very timely topic. I mean, this episode is going to go live early in 2021. So what better time to kick off a new year than with something that I think can actually really make a difference? You wanted to talk about information literacy, probably mm-hmm. one of the, the biggest challenges that we have in our time. Robert, why don't you go ahead and introduce the topic for us? So obviously, because this is like a jujitsu focused podcast, I'm going to talk about the topic through the lens of jujitsu, which is, I think, actually like a pretty, pretty good way to tackle the topic. Okay. So let's take something that people do all the time and maybe on like a subconscious level or maybe intuitive level, they do have an understanding for what they're saying, but if they're asked to explain it, they probably really struggle a lot of the time. And I'll give some examples of what people often say when they try to explain this. How can we come to say what is good jujitsu or how can we come to say whether one move is better than another move, right? So this is like a way of asking how can we answer the question of whether it is true that a move is better than another move, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is basically a question of like epistemology, which is the branch of philosophy that has to do with the study and nature of knowledge, okay? Which obviously is very connected to information and information like literacy, knowing how to make use of and gain benefits from information, okay? So when we ask, how can we show if it's true that a move is better than another move, the very obvious and not entirely wrong answer to that question is to take the two moves and to try them out when rolling. The trouble with that is there are two ways to do that. You can do it in a way that's very like sort of like random and haphazard. And so I think you see the results of this all the time. You see people who go, oh, well, this worked on my training partner, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, it's a good move. And therefore, it's better than perhaps like an alternative move, right? That's kind of like watching a single YouTube video on a topic and then going, aha, I know I know what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. When in reality, if you really want to 
Truth never exists in terms of black or white. It exists in, on a gradient spectrum, if you will. It's a matter of degree, right? So at least the argument that I'm going to make is that it exists in degrees. So when you want to understand something about whether a given move is better than another given move, the best way to do this is with rigor and organization. Basically, what you want to do is you want to assemble as much data as possible and analyze as complete a picture as you can, right? So this is what happens, for instance, when you compare a systematic scientific study on a topic and sort of an anecdotal study of a topic. What really separates these two is that anecdote, it's a single instance of something happening divorced from the context. If we really want to understand whether a move is air quote better than another move, right? The biggest thing we need is the context, okay? So how are we going to get the context? The only way to get the context is through a deep, rigorous, organized study of the situation in which the move exists and all of its variables that feature into it. Okay, that's one side of it. The other side of it is what does it mean to say, like, it's true that the move is better than the other move. So the first half of the question was basically coming to understand the situation itself. We need to understand the context in which the moves situate. That's the foundation for what we're doing. The second thing is, well, what does it even mean to say that it's better than another move? Okay, I think the obvious intuitive response to that is to say that, like, like I was kind of touching on it earlier, is that it works, right? But like, what does that mean? What that means basically is to say that it helps us to achieve a desired end. There, in philosophy, there's two big epistemological models, which I want to explain the differences between. Most people, I think, very intuitively latch onto the first, which we can call the correlation theory of knowledge or the picture theory of knowledge, which is to say that every statement of fact is true insofar as the symbols expressed by the statement stand in correlation with observable reality. This is basically like Plato's theory of the forms, or it's like what some people have argued in Wittgenstein's Tractatus. Wittgenstein's Tractatus, a big part of it is this argument, but I do think that Tractatus is a little more nuanced than that. But but anyway, I, <laughs> I won't go on a, on a Wittgenstein rant. So the idea there is that, again, that this is a very obvious way to look at it, and this is not an entirely wrong way to look at it. Which It's that your statement is true insofar as the symbols expressed in the statement correlate with observable reality. That seems very intuitively obvious. The difficulty with that is, that's just simply not how words are always used. The great insight of Wittgenstein later in his philosophical career was that he realized that is one way words are used, but it's not how they're always used. They're not always used to depict correlation between theory and reality. In jujitsu, I think that's actually very rarely how words are used. Another way words can be used is the sort of pragmatist account of knowledge. When we say that a statement is true, what we're actually saying is that statement, holding that statement to be true, acting as if that statement is true, has utility for us insofar as our problem-solving behavior is concerned. So our attempts to move forward and get things done in life is made easier by following this account. Let's say that we take two athletes and one of them thinks ankle locks are the best leg locks and they try to win ADCC with ankle locks. And another one thinks inside heel hooks are better, right? Well, which of those statements is true on the pragmatist 
account of knowledge will be the one who's adhering to that belief will more consistently lead to the desired result. So therefore, truth is always a matter of perspective. When I say perspective, it's not just like, oh, your opinion, because that's what a lot of people misunderstand about the pragmatist theory of knowledge. It's much more to do with truth is a matter of, and it's an emergent property of your desired ends and the world itself. So there's like, it's not just, oh, I can just, truth can be whatever I want it to be. That's not how it works. But it's like much more complicated than just saying, well, I'm just observing the facts and telling you what I see. No, we always come to the world with desired ends. And insofar as our truth theories forward us towards those desired ends, I think that they're good. And our aim should always be to increase the statistical probability, the odds at which our truth theories will lead to our desired end. Okay. And this is very like high end, sort of like wishy washy sounding stuff. But hopefully throughout the podcast, I can argue how I, I think it's actually very, very grounded in like a practical way of looking at things. Well, well let me try to hit it with a hammer a bit just so that maybe I, I mm-hmm. can understand it because I understand the core tenet of what you're saying here, which is that truth depends on context. Mm-hmm. And this is something I've noticed in discussions I've had with a lot of people and just criticizing my own thinking patterns. I think we all inherently want cleanly packaged definitive answers, right? Mm. But very rarely in life do you get clearly packaged definitive answers. It would be wonderful if things were 100% true all of the time, no questions asked, just do this. I th- and I think that we have an inherent bias towards looking for solutions like that. In fact, in my world, in, in the software world, we have a term for this. We call it the silver bullet fallacy, which is the, <laughs> the tendency to gravitate towards solutions thinking that they are a silver bullet for everything. Like it's an easy fix. It'll fix things 100% of the time. But very rarely in the real world do you find solutions like that. And even in situations where you do, usually those solutions are very bound by context, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and jujitsu and martial arts are a great example of this as well, where the rule set itself can totally depend or, and totally change the effectiveness of a martial art in a given scenario, right? I mean, if you want to take judo, for example, and take it into MMA and be like a high-level MMA athlete with a judo base, it's possible, but it's very unlikely. I mean, you know, Ronda Mm -hmm. Rousey did it. A few other people have done it, but it's just very, very hard. And so it's easy if you're not really thinking critically to just dismiss judo and say, oh, well, that martial art clearly doesn't work and just throw it into the camp of a lot of other martial arts that don't really work very well. But I mean, if you're into self-defense, Judo is awesome. <laughs> like ju- Judo is a very effective martial art for self-defense. But in the context of MMA, if you have convinced yourself that MMA is the only way to evaluate fighting techniques, then you're going to dismiss Judo. And so the context does matter. And mm-hmm. I think that's a great example. And something that you brought up there about how, you know, there's different ways that you can define truth. And one way to define truth is basically based on what you observe that kind of reminds me of the old saying of like you know if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it doesn't make a sound right basically if something is not observable is it actually true or not am i understanding correctly where you're going with this well that's what would be described as like the picture theory of truth or the correlation theory of truth yeah the which first is a- of the two you mentioned yeah, which is what i'm i'm arguing against as being like it's not the most robust 
theory of truth. It like tells us sometimes it is the case that a direct correlation is the best way to describe a given situation. For instance, I think probably anatomy works that way, right? Maybe aspects of engineering work that way. But so oftentimes that's really not a useful way of looking at truth, especially with things like martial arts. You know, it's anything where people are trying to like solve problems. It's not really a very useful way of looking at truth. The reason why this matters is because I think it leads to a lot of misleading practices. So, for instance, the way people oftentimes talk about jujitsu techniques, I oftentimes get asked, and I'm, I have no doubt you've experienced this too, like, what's the best leg entanglement? This is like such a, like a hot and stupid debate. It's like, what's the best leg entanglement? Is it cross-ashi? Is it 50-50? Guys, what if I told you <laughs> it was neither? It's just depending on what you're trying to do right? Because what people want so bad is they want these black and white yes or no dichotomy. They just want like simplicity, which is, I think, a good thing. Simplicity is valuable because it helps us to lower the amount of unneeded like thought involved in like solving problems and in our daily lives. But it becomes a problem when it starts to get in the way of our ability to like understand nuance, you know, mm -hmm. like sometimes that's a part of solving a problem, like nuance and subtlety. Okay, so the question you have to ask before you ask what is the best leg entanglement is to what end are you aiming to use the leg entanglement? And then from there, you can have an honest assessment of the relative advantages and disadvantages on a mechanical and tactical level of the different leg entanglements. But before you establish that answer, like you can't ask a question. There can be no question if an answer is not possible. So for instance, like if I asked you the question, what is your dog's favorite movie? A dog can't have a favorite movie. You know what I mean? That's not really part of like a dog's cognitive process. So it's not like a real question because it doesn't have an answer, right? Or I'll say this, there's no way for us to actually know. You know what I mean? Like this is another thing that's like, I think is very important to get at when it comes to like understanding like information is that you were getting at this too. We don't know everything. And we also can't know everything. So a big part of also what it comes down to when dealing with information is that we're trying to resolve uncertainty, but you will never completely resolve it. What we're doing is we're dealing with statistical probability. We're trying to operate to the best of our ability with ideas, which will make the solving of problems easier and more effective. But you'll never completely, there's no point that you'll reach where it's like, ah, oh, all problems are solved. It's all over. We've defeated all problems forever. That's a fantasy, uh, at least in this world, right? Maybe if you're religious and you think in the next life or something, that's, you know what I mean? In the material world, you'll never completely solve all problems. It's a very dynamic information. Literacy is a very dynamic process, right? Gaining knowledge is a very dynamic process. It will go on forever and ever. Yeah, I can give some some examples of that. I mean, in the context of my day job, part of my responsibilities is defining the data strategy for a tech company. And so we sometimes get asked questions that on their surface sound trivial, like how many customers do we have? And you would think that, you know, without really thinking about what that means, you would think that should be something that you should just be able to snap your fingers and answer. But then once you actually start trying to retrieve the answer, you realize 
there are a ton of assumptions baked into that, right? Like how, well, how do you define a customer? Is it someone who's paying you money now? Is it someone who paid you money in the last six months? What about someone who paid you money and then you refunded them, right? Like there, it, what, what type of business are you? Are you a business where you do single sales or are you a business where you do recurring transactions? If someone buys something from you twice, do you count them as two customers or one customer? And if you want to count them as one customer, do you have enough information that you can tell that it was the same person that bought that stuff twice? And can you collect legally the information that would actually allow you to tell it's the same person? Like, And it's frustrating, I know, when someone asks you, well, how many customers do we have? And you come back to them with a dozen more questions and you can't just give them a clearly packaged answer. And when I define data strategy for people, this is something that I have to help them get their head around, which is that I cannot just wave a magic wand and give you the answer that you want unless you come to the table and help me define what the questions are that will get to that answer. Because you can define it in, in any number of ways, right? I mean, we could define what is a customer in tons of different ways that could result in dramatically different numbers. And the thing is, they're all correct. You know, people go on about, oh, statistics, you know, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, look, these answers are not necessarily misleading. They can all be correct. It just comes down to how you define something. So that's one of the things that's so important about information is when you get a figure or when you see something that you think works, you need to backtrack and figure out, okay, well, what were the circumstances and the assumptions that got us to the point where we think this decision works. And in the context of jujitsu, you know, a very common example is what is the rule set, right? And that can change dramatically depending on things like cultural norms, depending on things like trends in competition. I mean, probably the most visible example for us is back in the 90s when BJJ broke onto the scene because of the UFC. I mean, if you're old enough to remember what people thought fighting was like in the 80s and before, <laughs> like people thought fighting was like you were a bodybuilder and you took a bunch of steroids and you punched people in the face because most of what well. we knew back then from <laughs> fighting was like stuff that we saw Schwarzenegger and Stallone and Van Damme do. But when push actually came to shove, it turned out that this thing that actually sounds very intuitive, which is like be big and be strong and hit someone, is actually a terribly inefficient way to fight. And what winds up being more efficient is actually a system where sometimes you're on your ass on the ground, which is totally mm -hmm. counterintuitive until you really start thinking about it. And again, even that, the rule set matters, right? If weapons are involved or if there's legal considerations or if there's multiple attackers, the whole thing goes out the window again. So you really need to understand the context with which you're applying martial arts. And even now, I'm very skeptical and concerned when people go on and on about how oh, jiu-jitsu is the perfect fighting system or, or even MMA is the perfect fighting system. Because at the end of the day, you know, human beings have been fighting with weapons for thousands of years, right? Just by going in and saying, I am having a one-on-one -on -one unarmed fight with someone in my own weight class, like you've already artificially boxed the world of fighting into a very specific package that isn't likely to manifest in the real world, right? So we yeah. all have these biases and assumptions that factor into how we make decisions. And the problem is we get so used to them that we become blind to them. And, you know, sometimes it takes like a Hoist Gracie to come in and shake it up so that we can realize, oh, there's actually a lot more out there 
that we didn't interpret or didn't understand. And even in the world of jujitsu, we're continuing to see these massive developments where people are questioning things and going outside of the box of what we expect and bringing in new systems into play that make us realize we had blind spots that we didn't even know were there. Yeah. Before I get on the more serious topics, I would argue that steroids and being jacked as fuck has been uh, effectively demonstrated as being like one of the most relevant things for modern competition. <laughs> okay, well, let, let me let me clarify. It does being jacked as fuck helps a lot, <laughs> but, right, yeah. but in absence of any fighting technique, it's probably not a good idea to just get roided up and punch people in the face, right? You still need some degree of actual mm. combat skill. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, though, you might be shocked at how little the level of skill you actually need to succeed competitively. And I think MMA, you actually need a higher basic level of prerequisite skill required to, like, actually win. But in jiu-jitsu, like, <laughs> to be honest, you could be just, like, a jacked-up goomba and, uh, <laughs> and like, not really be that good and, and do pretty well in tournaments a lot well, of the time. Well, in MMA, there's – I think the thing is, in MMA, there's a lot of ways to lose. And that matters, yeah. right? Because if you are technically deficient in mm -hmm. any of those ways, it's just like a hole in your armor that will get exploited. Whereas in jujitsu, I mean, yes, it is an incredibly complex martial art, but at the end of the day, like it funnels you towards just a handful of outcomes in terms of how you can actually win, right? And you don't have to worry about the idea of a flash knockout or something in jiu-jitsu. And I think the fact that it it kind of does boil down to grappling mechanics, it makes it a little bit more predictable. And I, th I think you're probably right. I, I mean, granted, I am not a jiu-jitsu athlete, but it really does kind of feel like even though it's getting better, the caliber of jiu-jitsu athletes is not where it is in other sports. Yeah, I mean, so I think that because of our sports overall lack of organization it's very difficult to proactively funnel things in a direction which would lead towards the sport requiring a higher technical ceiling as it stands it's not too difficult for people to just sort of like game a specific rule set that they like like so for instance most grappling rule sets do not we, we talked about this like at length on the last podcast i don't want to beat this horse too much it's already dead but like very few grappling rule sets very effectively encourage engagement a lot of the time when grapplers actually engage with one another it's in spite of rather than because of the rule set but mm. anyway let's not get too deep into that again yeah. <laughs> if you are interested in that please see the prior episode where we discussed this at length <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I wanted to I wanted to open up with that question of like truth, but now I want to bring it back down a little simpler and just ask like what is what is information and why do we need it? So this seems like this is a very information is actually a very difficult thing to define as are many abstract concepts. But personally, the definition that I like the most is that simply information is that which we aim to use to resolve uncertainty. Okay, that which we aim to use to gain a better viewpoint towards a problem. Okay, now there's two different ways. I'm bringing it back again to that like dichotomy between the picture theory and the the problem solving theory of knowledge. There's two different ways to think of the point of human sort of intellectual exploration, right? The point of the growth of knowledge, basically. One way of looking at it is that we're assembling a clearer and clearer picture of truth with a capital T. Another way of looking at it is as 
gaining tools with which to more effectively engage with the world around us. The first is kind of like chasing a shadow. It's like, yeah, you can keep chasing it and you may get somewhere, but you never really get the shadow. And hey, maybe if chasing that shadow, it helps you solve problems. Okay. I think that's oftentimes how a lot of people have gotten things done. They've been chasing that shadow and in doing so, they they got a lot of things done. I think a more honest perspective is one where you have a certain degree of humility about your work where you recognize, well, there is a degree to which we will never fully understand everything, but we have to operate within that lack of knowledge on a case-by-case basis, trying to gain contextually useful operating procedures, right? So like trying to solve things, solve problems in various areas in order to make our lives better. On a very practical level, I mean that, right? So, okay. The value of information literacy is more so than anything else that gaining access to information literacy will enable you to deal with problems more effectively, which is to say to resolve uncertainty about your future as much as you can. You'll never get 100% accuracy reading. We're getting a better picture of or a better understanding of how things might be if we work in this way, right? Like you work in this way, you observe these ideas and you get, there's a higher percentage chance of gaining this result. Now, there's two sides to how to use information. There's gaining access to it, okay? And then there's the actual, you know, use of it itself, okay? So we could talk about jujitsu right now again, because that's a very simple way to approach this problem. Okay, so you've got, how do we gain access to jujitsu information? There's a few ways to do this. You can compete very frequently. And it's very helpful to take organized notes and maybe record all your matches and have a good assessment of what happens and the different situations that arise. Approach it like a very organized project. So the more organized you are, the simpler overall the process is going to be. You can, you know, compete a lot. You can roll very frequently in specific positions that you're aiming to explore at length. You can do a very rigorous analysis of competition footage, which I think one of the best ways to do this, right? I think when you go back and you watch the history of our sport, you learn a lot that you really can't, like, in almost any other way than by doing that. You know, these are these are three really good ways, and which you can sort of like take data. And, and analyze it. Now, I would argue the best way to do it is be very organized and be very, try to be as comprehensive as possible so you get as full a picture as possible and try to remove bias as much as possible. Like in terms of like, it's just a difficult thing to do, but you want to try to go in without preconceived notions of what the end result is going to be, right? You, you, you'll have some basic ideas about what you're maybe expecting to see or have some, you know, like, oh, I think this might happen, but you have to be very prepared to be wrong. What you're trying to do is you're trying to like just plainly look at the data, keep an organized record of those observations and consistently cross-reference your observations with your past observations in order to slowly and incrementally recognize patterns. And you're going to then postulate ideas about how you can proceed forward. You'll never get a hundred percent picture, but the more you 
do this in an organized and rigorous way, the more you're able to interpret the data in order to more effectively, you know, hopefully recognize patterns and solve problems better. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like if I understand correctly where you're coming from here, you're saying that there's basically two different ways that you can approach acquiring information and using information. One way is you can kind of take the approach that, hey, if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. And this is not Mm -hmm. the best way, right? This is basically where you're using yourself anecdotally and just, hey, if I can see it in my world, then it must work. And if Mm -hmm. I don't see it, then it doesn't work. But a better way is more like the scientific method where basically you try to be objective, you try to collect a wider representative set of data to validate that something works, and you try not to come in and confirm your own biases, which is a problem that we're all naturally inclined to try to be doing, right? Where we try to confirm our own beliefs, but really that's not necessarily what you want to do. You don't want to come in and say, I believe X to be true, so how can I prove that it is true? What you do want to do is say, I want to learn more about X, and maybe I have a hypothesis about it, but I want to collect data and see what winds up actually being the best operating solution. And maybe it supports my hypothesis, maybe it doesn't, but as long as I learn, I've achieved my goal. It's not necessarily about proving myself right, it's about acquiring information. Yeah, you basically hit the nail on the head. And I really like that you use the term operating procedure, right? Because like so much of this has to do with what will lead to the desirable result. And what goes into that is, of course, the fact that it's not always going to be the same thing for every person. So for instance, like I have a training partner who is, uh, it's funny, we're actually the same weight, but he is significantly taller than me like much, much taller than me. So he's a very tall, skinny guy. And as a result, we've been doing a lot of 50-50 rounds where we're playing 50-50 with each other. And how he's going to play 50-50, basically by necessity, has to be different than how I play with. I have pretty short legs. And it's to impose my way of playing it on him or vice versa. Could I train him to do 50-50 how I do it and have success? He definitely could. But if you just try to copy-paste probably not the best way to do it. Like you want to factor such things in as body type and such. And so it's always going to come down to this sort of dynamic process of analyzing data and trying to come about operating procedures or ways of just going about doing things that will lead to a better percentage of outcomes, right? Like it will more frequently lead to the outcome that you want, you know? And like, So I think stating it in this way, it sounds so obvious, I think, when you say it. But like most people, I think, when they look at information or rather like when they look at like problems that they're trying to solve, they don't break it down into these simplistic terms. And so as a result, they're sort of always like floating aimlessly, like hoping to stumble upon the solution to the problem. And I think like you see that all the time in jujitsu, like people just sort of like hoping and like praying for like a solution rather than like the solutions are out there. It's not going to be something that will come overnight, but it's sort of like if I want to have a garden, right? And I, and I kind of just go to my garden and I just sort of like throw seeds around and then I water stuff like haphazardly. And I just kind of like, don't do it in an organized way. It's like, can I grow things in my garden. I, I mean, I, I've never actually gardened, so <laughs> I don't know, but I, I would have to imagine that's not really how you do it if you're trying to 
really grow a crop that you can like use effectively, right? A more effective way I would imagine is if you systematically lay down the seeds in rows and you have a schedule in which you water things and blah, 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 things of that nature, right? And it's not going to come overnight, but in time, what will happen is slowly but surely your work will more consistently yield results. doesn't guarantee that it will, right? What if a squirrel comes and eats all your seeds? You know what I mean? Right? Yep. That might happen, right? But do you think you have a higher percentage chance of yielding positive results if you do it in an organized way versus a disorganized way? Yes. Yeah. Well, that, that's a great thing to illustrate, which is that people often get the process confounded with the result where mm -hmm. they think, well, I got the result I wanted. Therefore, that means I must have done everything right. Or in the inverse, you know, I didn't get the result I wanted. So therefore, I must have done everything wrong. And that's just not the case, right? I mean, like, let's take this gardening example. It is possible that I could just throw seeds all over the place and it creates the most beautiful garden ever. That is totally possible. Not likely, maybe, but it's possible. And if that happened to me, I could wind up thinking I'm the greatest gardener ever, even though I don't know what I'm doing. Or on the other hand, maybe you do everything exactly the way you're supposed to, but then, you know, I don't know, there's like a massive storm and it wrecks your garden. Does that mean you did the wrong thing? And that's a problem that I think in jujitsu we're very susceptible to, which is this resulting fallacy where we look at the result and we use the result as evidence that we did something right or wrong. And that's just not a good way to measure it. I mean, I know, especially at a more junior belt level, I used to make this mistake all the time where I would, you know, I would try something out and I'd be like tapping blue belts with it left and right and think I was just this genius. But then I realized, you know, much later that I, I had no mechanics for that technique. It's just that the other guy sucked more. <laughs> and, and as a result, very, very trivial things were happening and he wasn't capitalizing on the mistakes I was making. So I was falsely convincing myself that these techniques were working. And that's a very common problem in jujitsu where people, you can give yourself false positives or false negatives and convince yourself that, well, you know, I, I must be doing things the right way because I got the result I wanted. Or conversely, you know, I don't know anything about jujitsu because I'm not getting gold medals at competitions. Well, there's a lot of factors that come into play, which determine the result that you get beyond just the process you used. And you brought this up earlier, right? Which is very few things in life are 100%. You can do everything right and still not get the result that you want. And so you have to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater if you've got a process, right? Because it could be that you're actually doing things the right way and you're on the right path, but you still just didn't quite get it this time for something that was completely out of your control. Yeah. Our culture in jiu-jitsu, it's a competitive sports culture, which really seeks to idolize the individual achievement of like the person. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I think one way that can mislead us is into sort of viewing the successful or positive results of an individual as being born out of like special magic powers inherent in that person rather than like them doing things which yielded positive results. You know what I mean? Which like, I hear this yeah. all the time. Like I've had people actually say this to me, like, okay, I was at a tournament once and I won, I had uh, six matches that day and I, I won them all. And I came off the mat and there was some guy there and he was like, man, <laughs> the last guy I finished, I finished most of them with heel hooks. And then the last two guys I finished with one a rear strangle and then a, a straight arm lock. And then I came off the mat and this guy was like, this guy was like, man, 
He's like, you can literally do everything. And I was like, no, I definitely can't. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't want to, this guy was being very nice. So of course I wasn't going to be like, listen, buddy, you're actually, you're an idiot. <laughs> like, like, I think the guy was like a wipeout. In his mind, he saw me, he goes, whoa, this guy is really good at all these things. Therefore, must be good at everything in jujitsu. And it's like, uh, that's not really true though. Like, until you see that someone's good at something, you don't actually know if someone's good at something. But, but because... He was looking at like what happened as being a byproduct of who I was rather than what I was doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's that, – is that called the halo effect? May very well be. I'm not sure. Yeah, where basically you, you look at like an attribute of one person and you think that projects out to their entire personality or something like that. There's a whole bunch of psychological biases that fall into this category where you kind of look at one aspect of a person and then think that defines who they are. Or you have a preconceived notion of what a person is. And then based on that, it kind of guides you to change the way that you evaluate the results of their behavior. What you're talking about there is a great example of the first method of determining information that you brought up earlier, which is this guy had a very, very narrow window with which to evaluate you, right? Like he watched you through his own two eyes in a competition one time. And based on that, based on what he saw, he extrapolated, well, this is who Robert Deagle is. Whereas what he doesn't see is the 99.9% .9 of the time you're training elsewhere. And of course, I'm sure you're kicking ass a lot of the time, but I'm also sure, you know, you get caught just like everybody else. And he mm -hmm. doesn't see that, right? So he is creating this image of who you are based on his own world experience and not taking into account all of this other information that he might not have seen or might not have even had access to. I really even dislike the tendency to even ask whether someone is a good or a bad grappler. Because mm -hmm. like, so I, I see these kinds of videos on YouTube all the time, like how good actually was Leo Vieira or whatever, right? Some old grappler or MMA fighter. And they're asking like, how good was he? Bro, that question doesn't mean a fucking mm -hmm. thing. It doesn't mean a fucking thing. You're trying to artificially take an athlete out of their historical context and into like this imagined like Dragon Ball Z super fighting battle dome mm -hmm. and be like, well, if, you know, if you took this guy from the 90s and you took this guy from 2005, like who would win? It's like, bro, what are you talking about? Like, that's not like, it's not fair at all. And it's just such a stupid, people do this in MMA all the time. Who would win, Fedor or John Jones? It's like, or like, or like pound for poundless. They don't mean fucking anything. They're so stupid. Probably my favorite example of this, I hear this a lot, is discussions about Hicks and Gracie. Like, well, what if right, we took yeah. Hicks and Gracie? What if he was in his prime now and was fighting? And it's like, guy, if Hicks and Gracie were 30 years old in 2020, he would not be the same Hicks and Gracie. He would have trained differently with modern techniques. He would not have been the same grappler in the same competition setting. He would be a different person. So you can't answer that. Mm -hmm. I mean, now you're getting into crazy hypotheticals, right? And it's an intriguing question and I get why people are drawn to it, but it's one of those questions where I don't think you can, I mean, how can you answer that, right? By virtue yeah. of trying to answer the question, you'd have to change who those athletes were in such a way that you can't answer the question anymore. So basically what I like to do when I study tape is I don't really like to look at just a simple like win loss. Like did that guy win? Did that guy lose? Oh, that guy lost. Therefore, everything he did was totally useless. That's so fucking stupid. Like a better way to look at it is in ter terms of like 
all grappling matches through two dimensions. I try to look at the mechanics of what they're doing and then the tactics of what they're doing, right? And the tactics very much have to do with like the metagaming strategy of the rule set, right? Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes that's what it has to do with. But the mechanics, you can just sort of like plainly analyze Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's very difficult unless you have a feel for what's going on. But then you go into the training room and you try it out and you try to like, it's a very experimental exploratory process that has to take place there. But like some of my favorite matches, I think are matches that people would say are very boring, but there's so many deep mechanical things happening, which I find very interesting. So I'm more interested in trying to understand the mechanics and the tactics. I'm interested in the tactics too, but Let's say there's a match, Grappler A loses to Grappler B, but Grappler A exhibits a move that has certain mechanical features and could be useful for a certain reason, but let's say he still loses the match, right? You can still take that instance and glean a lot of insights from it that are valuable to you. So, like, I'm much more interested in that than I am in, like, just sort of, like, looking at, like, who won or who lost. Is this idea of just sort of looking at results can actually be very misleading because so often I hear people say things like, on my new leg locks in MMA instructional, I do not show toe holds and ankle locks. And people were asking me before and after they bought it, they were like, how come you didn't show any toe holds and ankle locks? Can't that work in MMA? It's like, yes, that can definitely work in MMA. But it's for the same reason that I would, no, I'm not a striking coach, but I would, let's just hypothesize for a second. It's for the same reason that if I was a striking coach and I'm teaching like a fundamentals of striking an MMA course, I probably wouldn't show like Superman punches and spinning back fist. I don't know. Maybe a striking coach would. I'm just theorizing, right? Because this is like, can it work? Yes, of course. And it has worked. Andre Arlovsky finished Tim Sylvia with an ankle lock in a UFC heavyweight title fight, right? So yes, of course they can work. Can you break someone with an ankle lock? Yes. Can you break somebody with a toehold? Yes, of course you can. But is going for an ankle lock from, let's say, the top position or even the bottom position most of the time going to be worth the risk involved? In my opinion, the percentage chance of success is not high enough to justify the potential negative consequences of going for that move. Whereas a heel hook, if done correctly, can be because it's a much more devastating break and has a much higher percentage. It will yield a more positive outcome a higher percentage of the time. So yes, of course a move can work. And just because we see a move work at a air quote high level, that doesn't mean that it's like high percentage. What that means is that it worked that time, you know, mm-hmm. and that doesn't always mean that if you really want to understand something, information cannot be anecdotal. It has to be very comprehensive. There has to be a lot of it, right? We have to experience as many possible variations on a situation as we can in order to truly gain deeper insight into a topic. This is why like, I actually personally prefer watching rolling videos than matches. So it's much easier to find matches, but obviously there's many more matches on the internet of high level guys and there are rolling videos. Like there's a couple great videos that I love of like Cobrinha or Marcelo or whoever else rolling. You know, it's like that to me is the most useful because like, let's say you got like a 30 minute video of a guy rolling and he taps everybody out like a hundred times or something, right? Like they still go, right? When you're in a role, you tap out your training partner. That's not the end of the role. Like imagine <laughs> imagine if in training and every five minutes, let's say you got five minute roles in your gym, you, you tap your training partner out in 30 seconds. Oh, you sit out the rest of the round. Well, I won, guys. If it was a fight, I would have won. <laughs> it's like, you know, you, you keep going, right? So I'm more interested in that. I almost wish that jujitsu 
was more like tennis or ping pong where like there's volleys. Imagine if in tennis you went out there and like the first volley, that was the end of the match. Like nobody <laughs> would accept that. That would be like, what? No, no, no. We need to keep going. Like the longer you expand a competition, the higher chance the more skilled athlete is going to win. It's the same reason that the more data you analyze, the higher chance you will arrive upon useful theories with strong predictive and explanatory powers. Because like the farther you honestly take the data, that's a tricky thing. Something I think a lot of people might do is they might hear this and they go, oh, I'm just going to like watch a lot of tape and I will understand things better. Yeah, that's that that won't hurt, but there's still many pitfalls you can fall into. For instance, such as like cherry picking, strict preconceived biases. You'll never fully get rid of these. One strong preconceived bias that I know that I had is for a long time, I was like, just barren bolos are shit. <laughs> and like now I'm starting to like be like, no, 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 there's like strengths and weaknesses to barren bolos in given situations and such right, based on the context, blah, blah, blah. So I'm trying to really like, that's a move that for a long time, I just very much did not see the the utility in Nogi. And I still have a very like, I think actually limited view of them in Nogi, but I do think that they have a, they can be used. We have to establish the right context for them. But anyway, so you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what you're bringing up is how there's a difference between data and information, right? And you can spend all day mining data and that is important, right? Ideally, you want to have a large and representative base of data with which to draw your conclusions and your evaluations. But data is different from information, right? There's data, which is just the raw stuff you're accumulating. And then when you process that and interpret it, that's information. So kind of there's like a hierarchy of this stuff, right? Data is just the base level stuff. Information is how you interpret all of that. And we're kind of getting into an interesting topic here, which is what I, I sometimes refer to as the Reddit school of debate, which is where if someone presents an idea, your first immediate reaction is to say, cite all of your sources, or provide peer-reviewed evidence. And as a rule of thumb, that's not a bad idea, right? We should ask people to provide evidence that what they're saying is true. So I think it's completely reasonable to ask people to prove their work. But it's also important to bear in mind that the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence, right? Meaning that just because I don't have a bunch of peer-reviewed research, that doesn't mean I'm wrong. I mean, it's going to be a lot easier for me to prove that I'm right if I have a lot of data and information to back it up. But I could still be right even if there is no data and information to prove that I'm right. And that's where you get into the world of innovation. Usually when you're doing something innovative, you're doing something where there's not a lot of data that proves that you're right. Because if there were data that prove that you're right, well, then it's not innovation because I mean, someone else has done it before. I mean, an example would probably be if you, you know, had a time machine and you went back in time and you started telling people that heel hooks are this amazing way to finish fights. If someone came to you and said, provide me data that proves that, there was a point in time where you could not have done that. That doesn't mean that heel hooks are bad or ineffective. It just means that that innovation had not come out yet. So it's a good practice to ask people to provide that data or information. But it's also important to understand that even in the absence of data and information that proves that someone is right, 
That doesn't mean they're wrong. They could still be right. And so rather than dismissing someone outright, if you think their idea might have some potential, the next logical step is to help find that data. So you brought up a great example of how we don't have a lot of evidence that ankle locks or toe holds are as effective as heel hooks. Well, maybe one day that will change. It could very well be the case that someone is going to have some breakthrough system that is going to make toe holds the most effective finishing move. We don't have that yet, but that doesn't mean it'll never happen. I mean, I would say with ankle locks and toes, we do have the data because like, you could just see them not working all the time. Like people can eat it at a much higher rate. Well, what, what I'm proposing is if someone were to like develop a new system where mm-hmm. you could do dramatically more damage and the position could be effectively inescapable, right? Like it's possible that some system could come into play that changes the way that we look at those moves. You're right that right now with our current knowledge of how those techniques work, just they're not as effective as heel hooks in terms of finishing percentages. But one day that might change if there's a big development in the arts or if the rule set changes, there's things that could happen that could make us reevaluate the effectiveness of those moves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I want to be a little careful in moving into the, the realm of like innovation, because I feel like a lot of people will then hear this and then be like, <laughs> exactly, I don't need to study shit. I'm totally unique. And I'm coming up with my own system. And everyone can just shut the fuck up. Like, this is not <laughs> like, an endorsement to ignore what's worked <laughs> in the past. Yeah, you know, I know, I know you're not saying that at all. Obviously, I don't, I don't think that's the argument you're making. But like, I feel like people will hear this and like, and then maybe unfortunately jump to that conclusion. It's gonna be like, a bunch of white belts inventing new guards. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, geez, it's so funny. Like, there's a guard that I've been playing a lot, which I don't really have like a name for it yet. And I was watching some gi matches, and I saw a gi athlete using it, and he had a name for the guard. I was like, oh, look at that. It's, somebody else already figured it out, just in a completely different context. <laughs> like, there's very rarely things that are completely new. I mean, it, you almost always can find someone somewhere having done something. It's just the extent to which they use it. It's widely done, which allows us to... Like, the biggest thing which really expanded leg locks in the modern day was the widespread popularity of them. That's really what led to the massive growth. Because they got so popular, people started doing them more. Because people started doing them more, you know, and so learning how to access and make use of information is so important because without this, you're basically kind of at the whim of like chance or Mm -hmm. it's even worse is you can be very easily manipulated and misled by others into having opinions that they would like you to have right so for instance like we do this all the time in capitalist societies when we're trying to sell products like you will shit on someone else's product and you know talk up yours because you're trying to like convince them to buy your stuff right like in in the world of jujitsu i think you see that with like techniques and stuff like i think for a long time one of the big reasons that leg locks were shitted on there are all the other reasons but i think another reason they were shitted on is because a lot of instructors didn't know how to do them and they were kind of intimidated by the fact that they didn't know how to do them and so they just said well i don't know how to do this but i want you to keep paying me money so they're not good Mm -hmm. right like and that's Obviously, that's that's no good. Like, you should just learn how to explore it. And if you really happen to come to the conclusion that they're not good, you should have a good mechanical answer for it, not just some sort of like wishy-washy bullshit, which is what most people had in the past. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get where you're coming from. And I think that instructors in jiu-jitsu, one of the problems I think that we have in jiu-jitsu is that most instructors 
are just competitors who opened a gym. They're not people mm-hmm. who really know how to be an instructor. They just had a track record competing. They opened a gym and then they basically just tell people what worked for them. And so they kind of wind up creating cookie cutter knowledge and the thing right. is, what worked for one person might not work for another person, or it might not work in all contexts. So this goes back to what you talked about at the beginning, and how some people, they look at the world through their own two eyes, and if they see it, it exists. If they don't see it, it doesn't exist. And this is a great example of that, right? If your instructor has a tremendous amount of success with like collar and sleeve guard, and that's their favorite thing, it's very easy for them to wind up creating a situation where they're just focusing on collar and sleeve guard. And they wind up with a whole bunch of students who do collar and sleeve guard and have massive deficiencies in other aspects of their game. Uh, this mm-hmm. you know, is an experience that I had myself with my instructor where he is very, very focused on a lot of like grip-based guards in the gi and that's never really been my preferred style and I was never really good at it and it wasn't until I started training with other instructors that I realized well you know my instructor he's not wrong he's not being malicious about anything like what he's teaching is good stuff that works but it just isn't the right solution for me and there's other stuff out there that also works right just because my instructor has something that works for him. That doesn't mean it's the only solution. And I think also a lot of instructors, they have a bit of ego and they don't want to admit that they don't know things, right? And you know, you put a black belt on someone, you put them in front of a, a class of 30 people, and this person doesn't have experience being an instructor, they're going to feel pressured to have an answer for everything. And it can be hard to basically say, well, yeah, I know I'm a black belt and I know you're paying me all of this money to learn, but I have to stand here in front of you and tell you that I don't know the answer. It's hard for people to do that but that's often the right thing right you want your students to know there's a big wide world of stuff out there and just because your instructor likes one thing that doesn't mean it's the only way to do something yeah basically uh i've experienced that teaching uh seminars before and i'm pretty good about being honest about like when i don't know something and like i've had seminars told people before like um i'm not really sure i don't really know and people (laughs) people always hate that they want an answer even if it's not really true or a good answer. It's the silver bullet fallacy, right? People are drawn towards simple, decisive answers. And that is a bias that is easily exploited. So it's actually very interesting because I think that this tendency is what leads to, you know, in martial arts, sometimes we have a tendency towards like quasi cult formation, right? We're like Mm -hmm. super overconfident, purposefully delusional people will just tell you like, have you ever seen those videos with those guys, like the dim mock death touch They're and amazing. stuff? <laughs> yeah. There's 80 guys just like running head first to the instructor and he just looks at them the wrong way and they go <laughs> flying. Yeah. And it's like, and that's like the intensity of the power of conviction sometimes where like, I'll tell you a specific story. I'm not going to say where this was. These people didn't do anything wrong. It just was, I thought like kind of looking at it the wrong way. They asked me a question at a seminar, which I legitimately hadn't really thought about it. I thought it was like a very novel question. It was a situation which probably won't come up that much. And I was like, I gave them what my intuition was. I was like, I think that this is probably what will play out most of the time, but I haven't really seen this situation too much and I want to mess around with it. I I have subsequently messed around with it. And most of my initial inclinations on the situation, I think were true. It was a leg lock question. So I have a lot of experience with that, but it was a specific situation that I really hadn't thought too much about. It was very obscure. Basically, anyway, so like they really hated that I did not have a strong 
decisive answer. I'm the kind of person that I'm not going to tell you the strong, decisive answer if I don't actually think that there is one, because I'm not, I'm not interested in like making you think I'm some like magic guru, right? <laughs> like the reality is like I view myself as a researcher and I'm trying to understand these topics to the best of my ability. And if I don't currently have an area of understanding about something, I'm not going to tell you that I do. But like that should be the accepted and normalized mindset. But so oftentimes people hear that and they, what, they, what they interpret that as, this guy's just dumb. It doesn't, he, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, okay, so you've heard this so many times about my instructor. People say like, he's just like, he's just a genius. He's just like a magic guru, man. When in reality, the reason why Danaher is so knowledgeable is because he's just spent a long time engaged with very deliberate, very systematic study of data. That's why he knows as much as he does. It's not because he's just like a magic man, right? Like he's he's some voodoo shaman who just like found the ancient tome of jujitsu, right? Like, no, like he spent a long time engaged in deliberate systematic study. And that's what you have to do if you also want to aspire to that level of knowledge. And standing up on the shoulders of those who have come before you is something that you ought to do. But be ready to constantly have to assess the validity of what the people who came before you actually said or did, right? Like, so mm-hmm. for instance, like, so let's say you buy all of Danaher's instructionals, which is something that I recommend people do because they're very good. They're, they're some of my favorites. Let's say you st- buy all his instructionals and you study them, okay? You will learn a fuckload, but you know what you'll learn even more? is you watch his instructionals and then you watch the history of grappling. What's going to happen is very consistently, you're going to see, oh, okay, okay, I see that there, I see that there, I see that there, I see that there. That's the mark of a good instructor, that they give you the foundation and then you stand upon their shoulders and you engage in your own research. And guess what? The theories which they're putting forth tend to yield the results that you want them to have more frequently than not. What a bad instructor does is they give you ideas and they say, shut up, just listen to me. Don't like, they just keep, they're very, very confident about it. Mm-hmm. Like people can be, I think people can really be shocked at times by how confident idiots are. Like there are some really <laughs> confident idiots out there, right? Like it's almost a cliche, right? There's like a famous quote that's like, it's easier to be a hyper confident idiot than it is to be like really intelligent people so frequently establishing context and the smartest people I know in jujitsu always still doubted themselves because they were always asking questions. Very smart people always do that because you're always like analyzing and asking questions. There's never a point where you're like a hundred percent done. That'll never happen ever. And so unfortunately what happens sometimes is very super confident idiots will say stuff and then people want to be confident about their knowledge. And there's two ways to arrive at confidence about your knowledge. There's being rigorous and like the nerdy way, which a lot of people are like, I don't want to have to do all that work. (laughs) And like the second way to do it is to just sort of like blindly believe it. And I I think what's funny is like to some extent, you kind of do need some degree of blind confidence if you're going to be an athlete, right? I've been in matches where even if you have a very deep and rigorous study on a topic, something crazy can happen that you're like, whoa, okay, I, I never really saw that. And you kind of got to like problem solve as you go, right? So for me personally, like my confidence comes from rigorous study. Like that's where most of it comes from. But like a lot of people, I've been saying idiots, that's kind of mean, but <laughs> whatever. Like idiots, a lot of their confidence just comes from like just 
blindly believing something, like delusion, mm-hmm. right? And like that might work sometime, right? But it will also lead to a lot of uh, pitfalls, more so than I think it's worth, you know, and especially insofar as like the culture of our sport is concerned. I want to exist in a culture, in a community where the individual's words are not what is true or not. What is true or not is the extent to which the ideas espoused by the individual enable us to accomplish our goals. Therefore, it's not like a matter of just like, oh, magic man said something and it is true, right? Like I, oh man, I saw a comment on Reddit for this. I hated this. Okay, it was a JT Torres technique and it actually was a good technique. There's nothing wrong with the technique, but somebody was like, is this good? Someone was like, it's JT Torres. Obviously it's good. And it's like, it's like, well, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. It was, the funny thing was it was a good technique. Like (laughs) there really was nothing wrong with it. But I was like very gently challenged the idea that, well, just because it's a respected and very good instructor doesn't mean you should just blindly say, oh, it's, it's good default, right? I don't want anyone to ever watch one of my instructionals and then go, well, Rob Deagle said this, so therefore, it's not true because I said it. I said it because I think it's true. Do you get obviously the distinction? I hope it's very clear to people. Yeah, no, that, that totally, totally makes sense. And I, I mean, Reddit is a great example of where you can see that overconfidence in effect. And it's not always idiots, right? Like a lot of these are very smart people, but they're just overconfident. And it's funny because when I look at RBJJ and I'm looking at the just the level of confidence that people have in what they're saying, and a lot of the time I know they're wrong, it makes me think. If this is an area where I know a little bit and I can tell that you're wrong, despite the fact that you're speaking so confidently, what about the rest of Reddit? What about all of these other places on Reddit where people are speaking with tremendous confidence? Are they just as wrong too? And I I really think that a lot of the people on there are significantly overconfident in their knowledge. And a lot of the time there is a tendency to gravitate towards cults of personality. I mean, I will use myself as an example. I'm quite active on Reddit. And at this point, I'm relatively confident that I could go on there and post some totally idiotic bullshit and people would upvote and agree with me because of my Mm -hmm. public profile, which is hilarious because like, I mean, I'm a hobbyist. I have never competed in jujitsu. Like literally not one time have I gone into a competition. I just do it for fun and I try to Mm -hmm. aggregate information. I spend a lot more time aggregating info than I do actually training and competing. So really... No one should be taking like a lot of this advice directly from me as gospel, right? I'm just trying to aggregate stuff that I've collected elsewhere. But because people recognize the name, they will weight it perhaps more heavily than they would someone else. And that's really, I think, a good example of what you're talking about, where people have these biases towards things that sound authoritative. Yeah. So here's the trick, actually. I do think it's okay to, when you hear the words of, an established authority figure to sort of initially take it at face value. Like my approach with my coach has always been like, okay, when he tells me something, I'm just going to listen to it for like three months. Just like, (laughs) just shut the fuck up and listen to it for like three months and test it out. And then if I think it's true after three months, then continue to go along with it. But I do think that when you listen to an established expert, it's a good like strategy at first, right? Mm -hmm. The trick is, I think the real distinction is about, is it true because they said it or are they saying it because it's true? And it should always be the case that we as students, because we're always, I'm still a student. Everyone's always a student, you know, fucking no one stops being a student, right? Like you are looking for 
statements that are true that are said, not because the guy who's saying it, that his word makes it true, but he's saying it because it's true. Right. And so I've had that same experience where like, I started to notice like, as my like name and the jujitsu community grew, like I was really uncomfortable about it at first where like people would just like that guy at that tournament, right? Like he looked at what I was doing and I didn't think I did that well, to be honest. I mean, I won, I submitted everybody, but I was like, oh, there's, there were a lot of things I want to fix, adjustments I got to make. Like one of the matches, the finals match, the guy was a really wiry, strong wrestler and he fucking, he came after me really hard and like I was not expecting how hard he came after me and he scored like a takedown on me and, and got some points, which he got that takedown and I, eventually I wound up catching him, but it was like, it was a lot for me to work on, a lot to think about. But like the guy, he just saw the win and he goes, oh, you're magic jujitsu man, right? I don't like hero worship. It's not a good thing, I think. I think it's a very dangerous trend. I think there's nothing wrong with looking up to people and respecting them. In fact, I think that's sort of like, I don't know how you could not do that, right? Like, there's a lot of people who I look up to and I respect, you know, teammates, people who I've never met, you know, there's people who I personally think are not so great people whose jujitsu I have tremendous respect for, right? Like respect for me is always a context thing. Mm -hmm. Well, that's something great and really important to talk about. I mean, you're kind of touching mm -hmm. on two really important things. You're touching on appeals to authority and on authority bias. And this is something mm -hmm. that I think is often misunderstood. I hear people often say, you know, when you cite an expert, they'll say, well, that's an appeal to authority. But that's not the case, right? An appeal to authority is where you say, you should listen to this person solely because of their rank or title, because they're an expert. That's not a good way to get your information, right? You should yeah. evaluate the correctness of that information. But on the other hand, if an expert posts something that is true, well, if I listen to them, that does not mean that I have committed a logical fallacy, right? The reality is experts are more likely to post correct information than non-experts because they know what they're talking about. So just because you're listening to experts, that doesn't mean you're committing an appeal to authority fallacy. You're more likely to get good information from experts. So you should give them the benefit of the doubt. But like you said, you also need to think critically because nobody is right 100% of the time. Or even yeah. if they are right, maybe the context is such that the way you need that information information, it's different and it wouldn't be as useful to you as it was to them. So it's something to bear in mind when you're evaluating information from experts is, yeah, you want to take it more seriously if a casual layperson says something, but you also need to keep your mind open. And I think uh, simultaneously, you brought up a good point about learning from your heroes. And I think mm -hmm. this is something in jujitsu where people struggle with, where People want an all or nothing perception of their heroes. Their heroes are either perfect or they're not their heroes. And people have a hard time coming to terms with the fact that their heroes might not be perfect people or that their heroes might not be right 100% of the time. I mean, if you want an example of this, just question the Gracies, right? You know, the Gracies have a, a mythology around them, and a lot of that is inflated, right? And that's not to take mm -hmm. away from the incredible things they've done, but, you know, they're the stewards of their own family's story. And of course, they've told it in a way that, you know, it casts them in a positive light. And man, if you question some of those things, even if it's factually true, 
people get downright upset, right? Because no one wants to hear that their hero isn't perfect. But none of us are perfect, right? Heroes are people too. And we're serving ourselves better if we understand that everyone has strengths and weaknesses, right? Even our heroes are not these incredible beings that never make mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's actually a very important side to this when it comes to the topic of information literacy, because so deep at the heart of information science, I think possibly the most fundamental problem is that of information overload. Okay, so there's like a dichotomy here where in order to solve a wider range of problems, we need to accumulate more information. As we accumulate more information, the total of knowledge that we've accumulated is such that it's wider for any human being, individual human being to possibly understand, not because they're idiots or whatever, but because there's always a matter of like selection that happens, right? So for instance, like you cannot simultaneously be a master of everything in the world, right? Like I had a professor when I was a philosophy student, she was one of my favorite professors I ever had. She said to me that in your career, you will only truly understand one or two topics, and it's like, wow, you know, if you really want to really, really understand it, it's going to take a lifetime. And because it's that deep. And so then the question is, what? Well, geez, you got to pick the topic real carefully. And that's, you could argue that's just her opinion. But like, I, I think the general idea is true. And so what that means for us as individuals, then, well, this is a very tricky thing then, because there are so many things that we need to understand as a society, right? Which means that there's going to be an element of cooperation that is very, very important in what we do, in understanding, right? I'm very, very fascinated by the way in which cooperation and competition feature into jujitsu. I think jujitsu is a really interesting lens by which to like, look at these topics. So jujitsu is usually framed as a competitive enterprise, right? And to some extent, of course it is. But isn't there also a deep cooperative element in it in the sense that like, so I can't do it without someone else present, right? Like, <laughs> I can't practice jujitsu by myself. I mean, you can study. Of course you can. In fact, that's probably best done by yourself. But in order to actually really like test the merits of things, you've got to get on the mat and explore. You can't do that without other people. So like there's a term in judo, tokui waza is the term, right? Your Which favorite is that, technique, or as I like to call it, your finishing yes. move, like in professional wrestling. Okay, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, you're or like a or like a fighting video game. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. So your your finishing move. Imagine like a guy who spends 15 years studying, um, just as an example, deep half guard, or one guy spends 15 years studying X guard or whatever. Right? I think it's very possible and to be very good at both those guards. But if like if you want to be like the absolute best, if you want to like, there's a guy out there who's better at deep half than Marcelo ever was. And Marcelo is better than X guard than that guy ever was, right? And so like the reality of it is, is then that in order for us to really gain a full picture of understanding when it comes to jujitsu, just like any other topic, we have to work with other people as well. Because like, so for instance, like I will never know, I don't think I will ever have the same level of nuance and understanding as someone like, let's say, Josh Hinger when it comes to guillotines, right? That's his finishing move, right? That's his specialty. Whereas I don't think he will have anywhere near as close as understanding as I do about, let's say, like heel hook mechanics or whatever, right? And now, of course, as instructors, we should always be aspiring to have as wide and as deep a range of knowledge as possible, right? I want to have a mechanical understanding of a move, even if I don't personally make use of it myself. But 
my argument is just that there's a level of cooperation that goes into this where, yeah, that time at that seminar when the guy showed me a situation which I had not seen before, I had two choices. I could have just bullshitted the guy or I could have given him the answer that I honestly did and proceeded forward trying to expand my knowledge. And there's always going to be an element of that where like maybe something I don't understand like somebody else does. And there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, it's not really my thing. I can learn more about it. In fact, I'd like to. But right now, there's another guy, that guy, he, he knows more about it than I do. The reason why this doesn't resonate with jujitsu instructors so much is because we are in a capitalist marketplace where you're, you don't want to push students to someone else, right? Like that's not, <laughs> not a smart move, well, right? Matt and I had a, a whole episode where we talked about this. So there's kind of, you know, a rope where people are tugging at both ends in jujitsu. On one hand, the growth of jujitsu, the, the rapid innovation that we've seen, especially over the last decade or two, really it comes from the fact that all of this data and information is now out there and it's available, right? We have more information at our fingertips than we ever had. I mean, I would argue that the innovation in the sport in the last decade and a half is way greater than it had been before, just because with all of that information, with all of that competition footage, there's a lot more sharing of information. And when you share information freely and openly, everyone gets better. But on the other hand of the rope, you have the desire of the competitor, right? The desire of the coach, not, not even just the capitalist pressure to make your gym the best gym, but also that, of course, competitors don't necessarily want to go and give away their entire freaking game plan, right? So there's two diametric ideas that are pulling you in different directions. And it's a balancing act to know when it's time to share and when it's time to keep secrets, right? And I, I mean, I think the long-term growth of the art requires requires that we freely share information, but I don't think anyone is reasonably going to expect that like a month before his big competition, Robert Deagle is going to like publish his entire game plan on YouTube, right? It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And nor would you expect it to, because in the short term, sometimes you need that element of secrecy and that element of, of innovation and experimentation to, to get that win. And then, you know, maybe three months down the road, you can share that information after the competitions happened. There was a, a famous uh, sociologist named Robert Merton who coined the idea of idea communism, which People always shit on me when I talk about this because the, I know the word communism can offend. But what he's talking about is that if you want to see rapid innovation, the free sharing of information is the best way to do it. So, yeah, for, for the society as a whole, if we're all out there sharing and collaborating, the art as a whole is going to evolve. But we also have to balance that with the needs of the competitor and the needs of the gym who might have like a short term major objective that they need to hit. So it's kind of like a constant give and take. Yeah, I, I love that, actually. I've never heard that before. But one of the topics I was most interested in when I was studying was data sharing. Mm -hmm. And the oh, man, I think people would be fucking shocked if they saw the difficulties in many scientific fields in which like data sharing encounters, right? You'd want this idea of like idea communism, right? We want like widespread data mm -hmm. sharing. Like, I'll give you an example. I wrote a paper on this, actually. The lack of transparency in the medical field when it comes to data sharing mm -hmm. is actually unbelievable. It's amazing because people are trying to gain competitive advantages in the marketplace to make money, which makes sense, right? I would like to make money. That's like something that I like doing. <laughs> Everybody wants to make money, right? But like the thing is, is like 
that can become an issue when it starts to obfuscate our ability as a community to arrive at understandings on topics which are of value. Now, I think in medicine, it's completely inexcusable. We're talking about people's lives and health here, mm-hmm. okay? Now, in jujitsu, much more excusable because, to be honest, whether we understand the reality of, you know, a given jujitsu situation or not is mostly a matter of, like, you know, like personal satisfaction rather than your fucking life, right? Like you're not going to die if you, let's say somebody teaches you some bogus X guard stuff, right? You're not going to die. Whereas if somebody tells you like, Hey man, just, you know, take vitamin C and don't worry about getting heart surgery. You're probably not turning out well. So I think in some areas it's much more crucial than in others in medical field, totally inexcusable jujitsu. There's an argument to be made. However, I, I personally still, I'm very, very interested in expanding data sharing in the jiu-jitsu community. And in that paper that I wrote about data sharing in the medical field, the argument that I made was that the biggest thing which inhibits data sharing in the medical field, and I think this is actually identical with jiu-jitsu, is that we want to create a situation where researchers feel encouraged to share their data. Mm-hmm. Like there's two ways to increase data sharing. It's to just like point a gun at someone's head and make them. Hey, if you don't share data, like certain people have posited that medical researchers who don't share data ought to be punished legally. And like, okay, if that gets the job done, I guess, but that's not really something that, I don't really like that. That doesn't seem to me to be the best way to go about it. In fact, I would say you're better off encouraging researchers, give them reasons to share their data, right? And there's a lot of ways you can do that. But in, in jujitsu, I think one way we can do that is a culture shift from viewing the results of it's not about you as an individual. It's about the research which we're doing, right? And I don't really care about things like simplistic, like who won or lost the match. I mean, that sounds very like hippie bullshit. Like it still matters to some degree, right? Like I am a competitor. I want, if I'm competing, I want to win matches. But there's a Jigoro Kano, the founder of judo. One of his central maxims in judo that he taught his students was, uh, I'm not going to say the Japanese because uh, I will butcher it, but like the English translation of this maxim was basically speaking, it was that adherence to the way stands above victory, which is to say that the way, which is kind of like this research oriented process of consistently looking for the truth rather than accepting you've ever found the truth that adhering to that process, it's the long-term versus the short-term. Victory today is a short-term win, and that's not a bad thing whatsoever. Of course it's not. I And I will never begrudge a competitor for, for let's say, maybe gaming. If they game the rules legally, that's good for them. Fair play. I've, I've done it before, and I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it on a momentary basis. But in the long-term, what you want to focus on, I think, is the accumulation of knowledge through a deliberate and systematic research over time. And the extent to which we focus on that means that, so like one time I had a conversation with my coach actually, where, so I was very worried about people figuring out what I was doing at the time. And he actually was like, he told me, he's like, don't worry about it that much. And he goes, if what you're doing is good, even if they figure out what you're doing, it won't matter. And that was like a big moment. That was a big insight for me where I realized like, yeah, okay. Like, I'm not going to go up to somebody before a match like, hey, man, I plan on doing this. Like, (laughs) That's idiotic. (laughs) But at the same time, like, I had a match once where I had somebody in a position and I had been working on a specific series of digs for a heel hook. And I didn't do it because I was worried that people would see me do it and they would figure (laughs) it out. 
And I was like, the guy almost got out. And then I did it, and then I heel hooked him. And I remember thinking, like, that was so dumb. Like, I was actually <laughs> I almost stopped myself from doing something that, that was going to get me the win because I was worried people would see me, and then they would learn how to do it. And so it's like, dude, we're, we're going to, like, very high level of stupidity here when we're, like, <laughs> approaching this sort of a, of a mindset. And that mindset is born out of a, an insistence on the short term. Whereas, basically, if as a culture, we don't view just today as being all that matters, we view the long term as being what matters. I don't think data sharing will be as discouraged as it is now. I think it, I think it'll be very much encouraged to share data and talk about your ideas and, you know, because like, I could be wrong, but I think that in the GI community, there's it's a bit of a healthier mindset when it comes to data sharing. I, I could be wrong because I'm less involved with it, but like, from the outside, it looks like the gi guys have a better understanding that like it's not secret magic techniques that are most oftentimes going to yield the best results. It's honestly pursuing the truth, honestly mm-hmm. pursuing good strategies. And when you do that over time, it doesn't really matter if people figure it out because like, guess what? It actually works. <laughs> you know, yeah, it actually yeah. works. The problem with secret techniques is that, I mean, in addition to the fact that they stunt the growth of the art over the long term, the problem with mm. secret techniques is that, you know, in the short term, they demonstrate that you have a preoccupation with your competitors. And it's very hard to win a mm. race if you're staring at your competitor the whole time, right? You kind of need to be focused on your own thing rather than being obsessive about what the other guy's going to do. And it's completely right. Like if you are doing things the utmost efficiency with the utmost execution, that should be all you need to worry about. I mean, will people be able to figure out what you're doing? Yeah, maybe. But if you're the best at doing it, isn't that the most important thing? Right. Yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about it. Yeah. So it's so years ago, Marcelo Garcia, uh, I have two of his books. And one of the books, Josh Waitskin, who's one of his black belts, talks about how when they first made MG in action, they were sort of like wary of it. Uh, Josh Waitskin was somewhat wary of it because he was worried, like, if we put up all these rolls of Marcelo rolling, won't his competition watch it and then sort of just like f- figure his game out? And Marcelo's response to Josh, I thought actually had a lot of insight. It's funny. I think a lot of people look at Marcelo and they go, oh, he's just an intuitive genius. And I do think he is, but I actually think if you listen to him speak, there's a lot of insight to what he has to say as well. I think he's a very intelligent guy, actually. He just doesn't have like maybe the formal education to express himself sometimes. But I, I do think he's actually a very, very sharp character. But so he said basically to Josh that if they watch my roles all day, they will fall into my game and no one understands my game better than me. And I was like, there's such depth to that. And it did, it took me until I had that conversation with Danaher for me to really fully understand it. Because I still had this mindset of like, I don't want people to see what I'm doing. Like I had one time, oh man, uh, one time I had a super fight on a Saturday. And like that Thursday, one of his teammates came to Henzo's. And I went up to the guy and I said, hey man, listen, you got to train on that side of the room. I was like, you can't come near me because like, I'm fucking competing against your teammate. And I was like, I don't know if you're here to be a spy or whatever, but like, I can't tell the guy to leave. He paid his rate for the day and was able to train. But like, I was like, look, you got to stay on that side of the room and like, don't fucking watch me train. And like, you know, that was two days out from the competition. So I don't think I was totally off base, (laughs) but like at the same time, it's like, I think a better way to look at it is like, who cares? You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, so like, I used to go to tournaments and be very wary about like what I was drilling on like the warm-up mat or whatever. Be like, oh, I don't want people to see what I'm doing. I even, okay, one time I was at a tournament and I had one of my teammates go 
spy what the other guys were doing on the warm up mat. I was like, what is that guy doing? What is he doing? <laughs> like, there was one specific guy who I was like kind of worried about because he had like, he was pretty fast. He had like a really good outside Ashi. He went for outside Ashi. He got it real fast. And then I threw myself in 50 50 and I, I caught him in 50 50. So it was very rapid series of, of moves. But like, I, I don't know. I was like really like kind of like paranoid. So I told my teammate, I was like, go spy on him, see what he's doing. And he came back and he's like, he's working outside Ashi. And I was like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's what I already knew. <laughs> it's like, I used to be very wary about people seeing what I'm doing. And then it got to a point where I was like, okay, everybody. Who competes frequently? They know what I'm gonna try to do. At, le- at least they think they know what I'm gonna try to do, right? Like a lot of times I don't do leg locks. A lot of times I'll use leg locks as a way to threaten and gain position and do other things. But like people know that I do leg locks, right? It's not a secret anymore. And so trying to make it a secret is kind of idiotic. And so I stopped caring <laughs> about what I warmed up. I used to just now I just warm up with whatever I feel like, and I, I don't care if people see me. But like anyway. I started to change my mindset about that, which I think is better for me and better overall for jujitsu. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's interesting, man. How I think we all go through this, where we're it's just a natural, intuitive thing to want to keep your secrets. But mm-hmm. I mean, you look back at like the way jujitsu gyms used to run, where you know you couldn't have outsiders to your club and you couldn't share your secret knowledge. That kind of stuff over the long term is how you wind up with those crazy dim mock guys. <laughs> because if you do that for long enough, you're going to wind up with these gyms where they basically are totally isolated and they don't test themselves anymore. Uh, Rob Bernacki refers to this as inbred jujitsu, where basically mm. like people in the desire to keep their secrets, they pull themselves out of the community and just kind of wind up doing their own little thing. And yeah, if you do that for a long enough time, you wind up creating these gyms that just don't experience competitive pressure, which allows you to validate the effectiveness of your ideas. Yeah. And I'll say what's funny about that is every once in a while that can yield like a really interesting, weird thing, which can get people with, Mm -hmm. right? It's so weird and so novel that it gets people for a while. But for the most part, it just yields grapplers that are trash, (laughs) you know? So like, yeah. But anyway, I hope that for all the listeners, I've, I've successfully made the argument about why they should become literate when it comes to information. I think like, I think like information literacy should be taught in schools. Like it's a foundational topic. I think before you start diving into research itself, you should understand like, what does it entail to actually engage in research? And when you understand that, when you understand how to work with information and why you should be working with it, it's easier for when you start doing it. So Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely, definitely. Well, thanks again for joining us, Robert. If our listeners want to check out your stuff, what's the best way for them to do it? I would say Instagram and YouTube are probably the two platforms I use the most. It's the same thing. It's like one word. It's Robert Deagle, BJJ, Robert D-E-G-L-E, BJJ. If you have a question, I would forward it to me on Instagram. That's that's the best place. But I have a lot of YouTube videos where I have like free content, which are longer form. So that's that's useful as well if you're curious about like some of my ideas. My favorite thing about watching your drilling videos and your your footage that you post on Instagram is you start almost every role by booping the guy on the forehead. And I'm not totally sure why you do that, but it's awesome. <laughs> oh man, it's so funny. I never realized that. Well, I, th- I think the reason I do it is so when I was in a lot of people don't know this. I actually wrestled in middle school and high school. And when I was, <laughs> this is so funny. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, when I was in eighth grade wrestling, my wrestling coach at the time, he told me, 
I had just started wrestling. He told me, he's like, all the great wrestlers do this before they do a move. And he just did like the, he like touched the guy's forehead so that you couldn't <laughs> see for a second. And then he did the move. And I guess like, I've never stopped doing that. Like, <laughs> uh, that's so crazy. Uh, so yeah, that's stuff like that works though. It's a total psycho. Yeah. Something that I actually started doing. And I mean, technically it's a stupid thing to do, but if you're careful, it, it can work. And I, I do this to Matt all the time and he gets so pissed off about this is <laughs> if I want to stop him moving, I just grab him by the throat. And he gets so mad and oh, it no. frustrates you if you're not used to it, right? I mean, granted, you yeah. got to protect your arms, but little things like that, especially if you manipulate the head and the neck, it not only can it screw up the person's ability to move, but it can also really throw them off. There is a place for novelty and weirdness in jujitsu, uh, which is why, like, I I will not on this podcast. Maybe the, maybe the next time I con, I'll make the argument that the gogo plata is a good move because I think it's good, even though it's very weird and it's not like crazy high percentage. I think it's one of those weird, crazy moves that you you can get to work and like the booping on the forehead thing, like. I think that's kind of a funny example that I didn't even realize, and maybe I'm going to try and do that less now, of like, he was an authority figure, and I was a new grappler, I had just started wrestling, and he told me all the great wrestlers do this. And that was an example of me just blindly listening to him, and I never stopped doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've all learned something today. Um, Yeah, awesome. Thank you again for dropping by, Robert. I really appreciate that. No problem. Thanks for having me. Of course, for our listeners, if you want to support us, and please do, you can do so at patreon.com slash bjjmentalmodels. Again, that's the, the best way to support us and help us keep the lights on. In addition to all the premium stuff you get, you get early access to our episodes and you get access to our Discord community server where you can chat with Matt and I directly. Again, that's patreon.com slash models. Robert, I know you're off to training. Thanks a lot for coming by. Really appreciate it. Great chat. Uh, super technical and I think people are really going to benefit from it. Thanks, man. I hope so. <laughs> okay. Talk to you next time. See you, everybody.